So, Revelation chapter 4, we're at the start of the second of the seven visions in Revelation. Like the other visions, this vision contains a set of seven and we'll see it'll be seven seals and that begins in chapter 6. But like the first vision, the vision of the seven churches, uh, this one starts with an introductory uh, foundation of a, a revealing of uh, God and of Jesus Christ. Now, chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation actually follow the same pattern as Daniel chapter 7. Uh, we've, we've read Daniel chapter 7 a few times uh, recently, just a couple of weeks ago. It was our public reading of scripture passage, but it would be helpful for us just to, to look at that again. Uh, first, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days on his throne, ready to judge the nations. So Daniel says, I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So that's Revelation 4. Then Daniel sees one who approaches the throne and who receives authority. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's Revelation chapter 5, which we'll see next week. As I uh, keep saying, the mysteries that were given in part and were sealed up in Daniel's day, are opened up in Revelation. And we see that what was sealed up and is now opened up is the fullness of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember how Daniel, after seeing this vision, says that his thoughts alarmed him and his colour changed. He went pale. That's because he knew in part and he prophesied in part, and it was all mysterious to him. Well, here in Revelation 4 and 5, Daniel's vision is given again, this time to John. Not so that we may be alarmed, but so that we may be comforted. Because we see that the one who sits on the throne is the Father. And the Son of Man who receives all authority is our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now when John hears these words, I'll show you what must take place after this. He's been told that Jesus is going to show him events not in John's or even our distant future, but the events of the last days. What must happen after the Old Testament age of the prophets, of which Daniel was a part? 
Now that the fullness of time has come, the end of the age has arrived in Jesus. But in order to understand this unfolding of events in the last days, we need to understand the basis on which these events take place, which is why we first need to see this vision of God upon his throne. The first thing that this helps us be assured of is that despite how it may sometimes appear to us, he's still on his throne. He is still reigning over all creation and all of the nations. He has from the beginning of time and he will through to eternity. And nothing that has happened, the the kingdoms of men, the working of the devil, nothing has stopped, nothing has reduced his authority and power over the world. And we see that fact as John comes into the throne room of heaven, he sees one throne with one figure seated on the throne. The one true and only God before whom all other so-called gods are just parodies or imposters. And this throne of God actually dominates the whole book. We'll hear the phrase, the throne, repeated 25 times through the book of Revelation. Everything that comes from this point on is all played out before the throne of God. Now, the description of what he sees of God is quite brief. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Now, these are precious stones. They don't have any particular spiritual significance. John's simply trying to describe in human terms what he's seen, trying to describe the, something which really cannot be seen by human eyes. Now, there are some other Old Testament prophets that speak of seeing God on his throne and it will be useful to quickly read those accounts as I think John here is assuming that his readers will understand that what he saw was something of what the prophets of the Old Testament saw, even if he hasn't described the precise details. Firstly, there was Isaiah. He was a priest, he was in the temple and he saw the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Then the prophet Ezekiel, whose vision begins with a a vision of four living creatures. He says, as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness round it and fire flashing forth continually 
and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Then, Ezekiel sees above these creatures, which are cherubim, symbolic creatures that hold up the throne of God, he sees the throne of God. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upwards from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all round. And downwards from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire and there was brightness all around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all round. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. I trust that by now you're starting to see the connections with John's vision. And then we have Daniel's vision, which we've uh, already read, which gives us the structure for uh, John's vision here in Revelation 4 and 5. John wants us to understand that the things that Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel saw are the things that he saw, even if his description is brief. However, there are some other things that stood out to John in the setting in which he sees God. And these things can be understood in the context of the layout of the tabernacle. Trust you, you may remember this uh, diagram from when we were going through the books of Exodus and Leviticus. Now, the focus of the tabernacle is the most holy place there at the top in which was the Ark of the Covenant and on top of the Ark was the mercy seat with the two cherubim or living creatures on top. Now this was the throne of God as King Hezekiah prayed, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. John sees not uh, two but four cherubim here. But note how he words it. He says they're around the throne, but then he says they're on each side of the throne. They're like the cherubim in the holy place. We're told that around the throne is a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Because God's throne is the ark of the covenant. And that's what the rainbow represents, taking us right back with the sign of the covenant that God gave Noah after the flood. And did you notice that this rainbow is one colour? It's green. An emerald is green. See, what's important about the rainbow isn't its colour, but its shape. Some Christians uh, get upset today about 
the use of the rainbow by the LGBTQ lobby and groups. But, you know, the Bible makes no reference to the colours of a rainbow as being the significance of it, as a sign of the covenant. The significance of the rainbow is its shape, it's a bow. It's a deadly weapon aimed up at the heavens to remind, not us, God says, I put the bow in the sky to remind myself of my covenant with creation. God swears by himself. He promises to bring judgment upon himself if he ever goes back on the terms of his covenant. The gospel is that while we are the covenant breakers and we deserve to have the bow aimed at us, God in Christ has borne the wrath that we deserve. He has fired the arrow of his own judgment right at his own heart at the cross. So next time you see a rainbow in the sky, don't bother trying to count its colours. Take note of its shape and give thanks to God that in Christ his covenant still stands. So there remains forever, so to speak, a rainbow around the throne of God because he'll never go back on his oath to make a people for himself through the blood of Christ. We then take a step outwards to see what else is around this covenant throne. You know, he kept saying, around the throne, around the throne, the throne's at the centre. There are 24 thrones and seated on the thrones are 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now in the tabernacle layout, this is a bit of an anomaly. There were no thrones in the tabernacle. Only the priests and the Levites were allowed in. Not even the king of Israel was allowed to break the rules and step into the holy place. But this is a new covenant picture of the temple. The emphasis is no longer on who is excluded, but who is included, who has been brought in. We saw that a number of times, didn't we, in the seven churches. We'll continue to see this idea that the house of God, the door stood open in heaven and we're invited to come in to his house and to eat and to drink with him. So that's what these 24 elders represent. The Old Testament people represented by the 12 tribes and the New Testament people represented by the the 12 apostles. These 24 elders are a picture to us of the new and true humanity restored in Christ to our exalted position as rulers over creation under God. So their white robes speak of both the righteousness of Christ but also of a priestly status. See, the rule still is you cannot come in to the temple unless you're a priest. 
What are we? We are a royal priesthood. The church is the royal priesthood. This is the church, the church not taken out of the world, but the church, while still in the world, has this heavenly status in Christ. Ephesians 2.6 says, He raised us up and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then our focus is brought back again to the throne to see what's going on before it. Firstly, coming from the throne is lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Should make us think of Mount Sinai where the Lord made his temporary throne as he was entering into that covenant relationship with the people of Israel. In other places, thunder is used to describe the voice of God. God spoke from Mount Sinai in thunder. In John 12, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. God speaks from his throne with a thundering voice and just like thunder rattles our windows and wakes us up out of our sleep and we feel like the sky is falling in. So his voice echoes across the earth and accomplishes his sovereign will. Before the throne are two more things which bring us back again to the temple layout. There are seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God in verse 5. Before the Holy of Holies stood the seven-branched menorah which in chapters 1, 2, 3 we saw represented the churches. But here, just so we don't misunderstand, we're, we're told in this vision what this seven-branched uh, Menorah represents the Holy Spirit of God, the seven spirits. But it's significant that this seven-branched candelabra, whether you talk about it as candles or torches, it's the same image, it's significant that it represents both the church and the spirit because it's in the church that the spirit is primarily at work. Now, he's certainly working in the world, but the work he does in the world is to lead people to repentance and faith in Jesus and by doing so brings them into the church. And it's in the church that we see the Spirit working in all of his fullness, speaking through the Word, manifesting himself through various gifts, purifying, sanctifying the church to make us a temple of living stones with Jesus as the foundation, a holy house of worship to the Father. So this vision is a Trinitarian vision. The Father on the throne, the Spirit before the throne being sent out into the world and to the church and in chapter 5, the Son, the Lamb who sits on the throne with the Father and as we'll see also sends the Spirit. The next thing we see before the throne is 
a sea of glass like crystal. Now, in the context of the tabernacle, this is the laver which you see towards the bottom in the middle there. This, uh, this laver, is ju- that's just another word for sea. It's actually called a sea in the account of Solomon's temple being built. And it's called a sea because it wasn't just a little basin. It was five metres wide, two and a half metres deep and would have held around 50,000 litres of water. That's the size of a very large uh, rainwater tank. It was there for the priests to wash themselves in to make sure that they were ritually clean before they performed their duties. You could say that a priest needed to be baptised before they could come into the presence of God. But I want us to trace the symbolism of the sea back through the Bible briefly. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that Israel was baptised into Moses when they passed through the sea. They crossed the sea as they came out of Egypt. And that baptism meant salvation for them. But as the waters roared back into place, it meant judgment for the Egyptian army. Now, the Israelites would have known that their experience of going through the sea and being saved and of the sea then bringing judgment was reminiscent of Noah. Noah being saved through the raging water which was the judgment of God upon the wickedness of humanity. And then when the flood had subsided and the waters were back in this place, God established that covenant with Noah and all of creation. 1 Peter 3 also calls Noah's flood a baptism. But that flood, that flood was like an act of a new creation and it pointed back to when everything we're told in Genesis 1.1 was formless and void. Some uh, translations have it as chaos. But then we see the spirit hovering over the waters the Father speaks and the formlessness was brought into order with heaven and earth and seas and dry land and the oceans are held back so that humanity can live on the land but look at the sea which seems to be always trying to take over the land but is is never able to and they're reminded of God's sovereignty and his creative power over all creation. Now, coming back to Revelation, what we'll see uh, in a few weeks is that the imagery of the sea, the raging sea, symbolises the raging of the nations and the people of the world who are in this great tumult as they're stirred up by the devil to fight and oppose God. So, pulling together all of that biblical imagery of creation, of the flood, of the exodus, of baptism and the raging nations, we come to this sea of glass like crystal before the throne of God. It shows us that he rules over creation, over the waters, bringing about judgment 
and salvation. By describing it as crystal, he's saying that it's perfectly clear, it's perfectly calm, as we would say, crystal clear. No turmoil, no raging, no impurity. See, God is the one who brings order where there's formlessness. He brings salvation where there's judgment. He brings purity where there's uncleanness. He brings peace where there's the turmoil of war. This sea of glass speaks of God in his absolute sovereign and holy power where he's above all of the thoughts and the imaginations of human beings. His appearance is like lightning. His voice is like thunder. Yet he's nevertheless approachable and knowable. How do we approach his throne? We approach by being baptised. We pass through this crystal clear water and we're washed clean of all of our sin and our impurities. We're made a new creation. We are born again by the work of the Spirit because of the shed blood of the covenant. You may recall when we were in Exodus and Israel were at the foot of Mount Sinai, the very similar description was actually given of the Lord. Moses, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. That pavement is the equivalent of this sea of crystal clear glass. Now I mentioned briefly the four living creatures, but let's look at them a bit more closely. It was common in the ancient world for art depicting gods, riding chariots or sitting on thrones carried along by angelic, heavenly, living creatures. They're the cherubim and the seraphim. They're these composite uh, creatures with wings. That's what Ezekiel saw holding up the throne of God. Now, each of the creatures that Ezekiel saw, if you remember from that reading, each of them had four faces, a lion, an ox, an eagle and a man. Here we see a version of that, but four creatures, each having one of these faces and with six wings instead of Ezekiel's four. Cherubim and seraphim, I I believe, aren't factual creatures like angels. They're symbolic representations designed to communicate this heavenly majesty of God. They guard the entrance to his throne room like the cherubim guarded the gate into Eden. They hold up his throne and they declare his holiness. The eyes that cover them aren't literal seeing eyes, but the word for eye in the Old Testament is the same as a precious jewel. So they're covered in precious jewels. They speak not of being all-seeing, but of the magnificent adornment of these creatures who are in the presence of God, who himself, his, whole, his appearance is described as being like 
precious jewels. Now, scholars have uh, theorised over the years, over the centuries, about the significance of these four faces of these creatures. The one that's stuck historically is the view of Irenaeus, who lived in the second century, who said they represent the four Gospels. And a lot of scholars since then have agreed with him, but they've disagreed over which face represents which Gospel. Uh, There's pretty much as many permutations that you can think of. It's more likely that these four living creatures represent living creation, living, breathing creation, hence their name, living creatures. Each is like the apex of their kind. The lion is the head of the wild animals, the ox the head of the domesticated animals and then the eagle is the ruler of the creatures in the sky and humanity is the ruler of the creatures on the earth. These creatures are around the throne, they're leading worship on behalf of all creation. In the words of Psalm 150, they're calling everything that has breath to praise the Lord. Now, all of this so far are the things and the figures that John sees, but what's more important and what's all important and what makes this whole thing significant for us about what is actually happening in this heavenly tabernacle, every figure in this scene is active and the one activity is worship. So we can learn some very important things from this scene about what true worship actually is. First, true worship has God at the centre. may seem obvious, but you know, everything was around the throne. The whole focus is on God's throne. It's something that we need to hear today. A lot of what is called Christian worship today is not centred on God, it's centred on me. It's about my experiences and my feelings and what I get out of it. It's controversial to say this, but so often it's music-driven, such that when many Christians hear the word worship, they think of the 20-30 minute segment in church when the musicians and singers are up on the stage acting almost like virtual priests who somehow bring an experience of God. Some people today choose the church that they go to based on the quality of the worship experience in which the emotional high that's generated by the music is mistaken for the presence of God. Ultimately, that's worship not of God, that's worship of myself. I come as a consumer to see what I can get out of the worship experience. Secondly, notice that this worship in heaven takes the form primarily of words. Sometimes there are actions that reflect the words that are being spoken. See how the first one who speaks, it's in there somewhere, the first one who speaks is actually God himself, the rumblings and the peals of thunder. He is the God who speaks. His son is called the Word, 
The Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. And so, as Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well, the Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. He's not saying there are two elements of worship, one spirit and another truth, but that as the Spirit is poured out upon us, the primary fruit of his presence among us, as on the day of Pentecost, is speaking, telling the mighty works of God. And then, so see how radiating from the throne at the centre in concentric circles are those speaking the truth about God and his actions. So firstly, in reply to the thundering voice, the four living creatures declare the nature of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God must be worshipped primarily for who he is, the thrice holy, eternal, sovereign God. Holiness is his primary attribute. Everything about him flows from that. So if we don't have in our minds and our hearts this vision of God as supremely, infinitely holy, then everything else we think about him will be deficient. Not only that, but unless we see him as supremely holy, we'll be tempted to have too high a view of ourselves. It was this vision of God's holiness that caused Isaiah to fall down and cry out, Woe is me, I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But secondly, in response to the living creatures, the 24 elders, who remember, that's us, fall down, remove their crowns in acknowledgement of his holiness and add to the living creatures' declaration of who God is with a declaration of what he has done, his mighty sovereign action as the creator of all things. God is to be worshipped for what he is and what he does. So true worship can only happen if we both know him, which can only happen if he makes himself known to us, and if we are witness to his actions, beginning with the most basic fact that if he had not created all things by his will, we wouldn't even exist to worship him. It's something that we know is true, but we need to constantly remind ourselves that we owe our very existence to the kindness and the generosity of God who freely chose to create us. Not because he needed us, not because he was lonely, but purely that we might be the recipients of his holy love and grace. Remember the heart of sin was that we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. So then true worship begins when we exchange the lie for the truth about God. 
and we worship and serve the Creator rather than the creature. It's when we reorient our gaze away from ourselves and onto Him, coming to Him on His terms, not our own. And it's when we see that this vision for worship isn't just about what happens here in this building for one or two hours on a Sunday, but something that involves the whole of our lives. We live every moment before the face of God. Every morning before you wake, not before you wake up, when you wake up, maybe if you keep doing this, it will happen before you wake up, before your feet touch the ground, remember Remind yourself you are a creature created to worship God. Made to live before the one true holy God and give him thanks that you exist. That you exist for his glory but also that you have access to him because of Jesus Christ. This picture of worship is actually just the beginning. This is part one. We'll see next week that the worship of God just as the sovereign holy creator isn't actually enough. Chapter 5 will introduce a new figure to this scene. Christ, the lamb who was slain, the one who takes our worship and expands it and transforms it. Because in him we worship not just the father as our creator, we worship him as our redeemer. Let's pray.